Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Poetic Resurrection. Today, we're honored to have Leon Conrad, author, editor, story structure consultant, and author of Story and Structure, A Complete Guide. Welcome. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about this because your book is nonfiction, but yet it deals a lot with the harmony of life. And I find that fascinating. Can you explain that? Why it is harmony? Harmony is part of what makes story story. Story often starts with a problem, not always, but often starts with a problem. And the purpose of telling a story is to go through trials and tribulations and solve the problem, find harmony at the end. So you could say harmony is what drives stories. But not all stories start with a problem. In Story and Structure, I've outlined the structures that 18 different story types follow. I've used six simple symbols, that's something new I bring to the field. And one of those story structures that has come to life is, um, as part of the research is what I call the creation myth structure. It's the structure that the story that opens the first chapter of Genesis follows. In the beginning, things happen. God said, let there be light, and there was light. There was no problem. It wasn't as if God looked around and said, hmm, it's a bit dark. Let's have some <laughs> light somewhere. Turn on a switch. No, it just flows forward. That's all the creation myth structure is about. And I think that when there is harmony, when there is balance, the kind of harmony you get in music, which is a play of harmony and discord mm -hmm. that creates this flow, then you have the flow that story loves, that life loves. And I think that's what we're called to do, to live harmoniously. I think everyone looks for harmony in one way or another. Now, I do have a, something popped into my head, and I know I'm going to divert a little here. But what about something, because is Halloween coming up for us here? I don't know if you celebrate it in England. Horror films, horror stories. Is there a harmony with that? You could say there is. Okay. How do we come to terms with things we cannot find words to describe? How do we come to, to terms with death, sickness, horrible things, unless we tell stories about them? We put them in a safe space. And the story holds that space. The storyteller holds that space. And it's a way of distancing ourselves, looking at whatever is happening in the story and making sense of it. Because it's in the story, we can then resonate to how we feel about it within us and come to terms, find balance, find harmony through that experience. Got it. 
offline we were talking about, we're going to talk about poetry and story. And I'm really interested in that since Poetic Resurrection does deal a lot with poets. Well, one of the things that came out of the research that has been published in Story and Structure is that two things about poetry. One, poems that follow uh, strict forms like sonnets, haikus, or um, landes. There are other forms I cover in the book, like limericks. They follow particular story structures. So you can see a parallel between the shape of a poem, like a limerick, and the structure that a story st follows. And by realizing that, this is new stuff, by realizing that, you get new insights into why we have these forms in the first place. When poets go to poetry school, they learn to write something in these forms. You learn to write a limerick, you learn to write a sonnet. But nobody really questions why we have a sonnet form in the first place. There are various variations, the Italian one, the English one, and you can do things with them and break the rules, but you have to learn the rules first. What I do in story and structure is say, well, there is a logic to this. They follow a particular story structure and the story structure makes sense. It has this ebb and flow and it covers these themes. And if you realize that that's the theme family you're working with, when you're working with this form of a poem, then you have an appreciation of the function of the form and you get more harmony between the content and the form. Okay, a little confused. So let's say a limerick. Yes. How does that tell the story? Only in the form, not in what the words are saying. Exactly. So I'm glad you asked that because as you are a poet, you will respond to rhythm. What comes next? In a limerick. That's one way of doing it, but that isn't a limerick. Ah, okay. Yeah, and it's that pattern of expectation which is held up, defeated, and then fulfilled that creates the pattern that is also found in story structure. What I do is map the patterns of ebb and flow, of tension and release that can be found when you take a story down to its bare bones. And when you take a poem and analyze those patterns of ebbing and flowing, you set up a pattern, you set up the expectation that something's coming after. You do that through rhythm, you do that through rhyme. Yes. When that expectation is fulfilled and it's complete, the poem comes to an end. And it's the number of patterns of fulfillment set up and either um, expectation set up, sorry, and either fulfilled or defeated that give a poem a particular story structure. Now, how does rhyming in a poem differ from a poem that doesn't rhyme? So rhyming adds another level of patterning. And when you get this expectation to be fulfilled, you have another example of harmony. Right? Da 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 da. 
da 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 and you know what the rhyme is going to be on the last line, don't you? Yeah, because but if I change it, yeah, da 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 do do. You're expecting da. I gave you do do. And you're either going to laugh or you're going to say, uh-uh, that is a terrible limerick. It doesn't work. Got it. Now, I don't normally follow a structure with my poetry. I follow my emotion with it, and mm -hmm. then I clean it up. Because honestly, when I first write a poem, it's like, I saw, I did, I, you know, that a subject verb is like, and it drives me nuts, but I'm just trying to capture the feeling of the time. I know I'm going to have to clean it up. So what would you call the way I write? Because I write from the emotions. I don't write from a style. That's what is really interesting with freeform poetry, with short poems, and it comes into haikus as well. So whether you write in a particular form or you do freestyle poetry, what distinguishes a poem from a narrative is that a poem opens up a moment where you have an emotional connection, you go, ah. And that ah may be part of a larger story, but what the poet does is focus on that moment. It may, as in a haiku or very often in a Scottish ballad, which is a metrical form, focus on two moments. Somebody says something and somebody replies. It's a moment in the narrative, the story has a backstory, the story then goes forward, but you're caught at this moment. Yes. Yeah. And the poet then expands on that. James Stevens, a great Irish poet, said the poet energizes matter more highly than prose can manage. And it's that energy, that condensed encapsulation of both emotion and feeling, intellect and symbolism, the multi-layered aspect of connotation rather than the denotation that makes a poem sing. And that multi-leveled harmony is what poets go for. They have a greater sense of it. Been writing poetry since I was a child, but it was always from emotions. And it's like I used it as therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's, you're right. It's one part of your life, some emotion you went through or a little story or an ex experience that you talk about that really affects you. Let's do a little bit about you. I know we're going to go back to this, but tell people who you are and how you started with this. I'm a person who was born in London, UK, to a Coptic Egyptian mother and a Polish father. I grew up in a multicultural, multilingual household, and I loved words. My parents divorced when I was six. My mother took me back to Egypt. I grew up in another multicultural, multilingual family, in the souks and bazaars of Alexandria and Cairo. Alexandria is a wonderful town which combines a mix of Ptolemaic Egypt, of modern day, of ancient Egypt, of Greece, of Europe, of North Africa. And this environment really shaped me. I learned to go back thousands of years, connect with my Coptic Egyptian roots, and with modern day life, 
And it was there that I had two seminal experiences. The first was an encounter with a storyteller from an unbroken living tradition right from the Arabian Nights. I met her twice and she told a story improvised. And she had a group of rowdy school children completely spellbound. And I thought, forget what they're trying to teach us in school. I want to know how to do that because she has real power. And the second was listening to a singer in a choir. She had an operatic voice, but wasn't an opera singer professionally. She could have been, but there was no opportunity in Egypt. But this was her time to shine. And the choir conductor knew this and knew that she was a very good musician. She had a lovely, deep alto voice, and she'd written this descant that soared over the choir as the choir held the tune. And as she did so, I'd heard it before. We'd been in rehearsals, but there was something about this particular day and this particular time that made me stop. I stopped breathing. Time ceased to exist. Space just dissolved into infinity. And I was transported to a totally different realm of being. I've never forgotten that moment, and I've never forgotten what the power of her voice was able to do to me. Those two things have guided me to finding out, firstly, how my voice worked, working with singers using languages. I worked with opera singers and public speakers, actors, storytellers, and did performance poetry and storytelling myself. And they led me to find, eventually it took me about 40 years, to find someone who works in an unbroken line of oral storytellers and had not only the stories from that tradition, but also a complete way of learning them so that you could, after seven to 12 years apprenticeship, find a way of containing around 4,000 stories within you and be able to tell any of them at the drop of a hat, which is that, an incredible feat. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, and I've never met anyone that can do oral tradition from way back when. That's very impressive to know that you have a apprenticeship of 10 to 12 years. It's amazing. Music could so take you to a different realm mm -hmm. outside of yourself. I'm not a violinist, but I've heard certain violinists, they do a certain song and it just, I start visualizing, I see a story and music is a great motivator for writing. And a great source of harmony as well, Sonia, right? Yeah. And funnily enough, music was one of the keys to unlocking my approach to analyzing story structure. When I went to music college, I was very lucky to have a teacher who was into some obscure way of analyzing music, which I won't bore you with, but it's called Schenkerian Musical Analysis. And it distills the tune into its main notes. And by doing that, you really learn the essence of a piece. I took a very similar approach to story, distilling it to its bare bones and finding the pattern that was at the heart of it. When you were just telling me about that, I have a degree in ethnomusicology. I found when I was studying world music, and much of it is religious, 
the microtones that you don't get in Western music. Mm-hmm. It adds that cultural flavor to the sound. That's why violins are popular. There's no frets. And nothing that's divided by quarters is uh, it's good for um, like Middle Eastern music. Is I, I love Middle Eastern music. I see the harmony in it. What I find in world music also with the poetry and um, that's associated or, or lyrics, as we call it, that it just it hits those little notes that make it just theirs. But it's also there in Western music when you hear a great opera singer ornamenting a Baroque uh, aria and they sing the tune. Something different happens in the middle and then the main tune comes back and what they're supposed to do by the conventions of the period is spice it up a bit. Yeah. Give you the tune, but with a little bit of ornament. And the great ones do those microtone thingies and trill and flourish. And it's really exciting. I like Italian opera because you could play with it more, not because it technically is better than any other opera, but because it gives you the liberty to play with it more. So I know we diverted from poetry and story. But it's all harmony, isn't it? It is. I love having conversations with people like yourself who I learn from. Can you tell me about folklorists and maybe bring that in with the poetry as well? So there's two ways I can bring this in. Shonali Cambos is the person I'm studying with. She is a Drudzilla, and she comes from a Jewish women's storytelling tradition. Could call it folklore, but um, that is her context, that is her culture. Very different to the male storytelling thing that is very much the public face of Judaism. You have the Midrash, you have the rabbis, you have the commentaries. Uh, you have the male storytellers and writers. The women's tradition was very much oral. It was in the home or the community, very strong communal feeling to it. And they did deal. Some of her stories are very dark for a reason, because they were a way of the community coming to terms with things that they couldn't talk about otherwise. The stories were a way of healing, of coming to terms with trauma. The Arabic tradition is another one. You have different uh, stories, you have different cultural glosses, you have ways of getting things into stories that you wouldn't necessarily be able to talk about in the wider culture. In very strict Islamic cultures, you can't depict the um, face or um, shape or draw a portrait of a religious figure. But you can describe them in a story. I didn't know that in the strict Islamic that you couldn't show a visual of a person. Which is why mosques are ornamented not with icons or pictures of the saints, but with geometry and calligraphy. Now I'm going to research that, you know, as soon as we get off here, it's like, oh, I'm interested in this. The Sufis are different, though. The Sufis do illuminated manuscripts and they do um, they do have a tradition of drawing the portraits of key figures. I love the way they dance. That's a hypnotic dance. They twirl for hours. Mm -hmm. Do you want to elaborate more on the poetry? I do. So. 
for the poetry, there's also a use of language, use of heightened rhetorical devices. And what I've found is that there is, talking about cultures and folklore, one structure that's really important and underpins not only every single story structure I've found, but also comes to play in stories, particularly haikus, but it's like a litmus test of being able to say, have I hit all the points in my poem? Have I really got the essence of this emotional uh, feeling that inspired the poem? Mm -hmm. And this structure is called the Chinese circular structure. It's based on a way of arranging the Chinese five elements around the circumference of the circle with earth, the fifth element at the hub. So you have earth at the center, and then imagine going round a wheel. You come out on the left and you have four points equidistant mm -hmm. around the circumference. The left point is wood. That's one of the Chinese elements. The others are fire, metal, and water with earth at the middle. Wood stands for bamboo. It bends and it symbolizes spring appearance, emergence. Then you go up to fire. And fire symbolizes summer. That's when you have the division of the plant into a root system and a shoot system. Tree goes upwards towards the sky and downwards towards the earth. But it's still one thing. Then you go to the element of metal, that's autumn or fall. And that stands for separation. Metal can either be melted or it can be solid, but it can never be both at the same time. Unless it's mercury, but mercury is the trickster. Yeah. <laughs> That's all about separation. And then you go to water and water is returned down to the earth where the fruit falls from the tree in autumn. The seed is buried in the soil in winter and has time to sleep to feel the fire grow within it so that it re-emerges in spring. At any point, the things can reconnect to earth at the center where yin and yang are in balance. Yin and yang are in harmony there. And at each point around the circle, there's either a strengthening of yin or a strengthening of yang, or you get complete yin or complete yang energies. If you map your experience around that cycle, which is a natural cycle, which is the cycle that a plant follows from germination to return to the earth. Then you say, right, what is the emergence of this emotional thing? What gave rise to it? How do I describe it? What is the division, that sense of tension it brings? Where's the separation? If I distance myself from it, what do I feel? Or is there a longing that seeks for something to be reunited to something that I need to explore here? And what does it feel like to return? What's the connection to the source of everything, the ultimate source of life? How can I find harmony? We're all trying to find that one, but it's beautifully put. Thank you.
There's a lot about that in the book if you're interested in going further. It's a beautiful, beautiful system. It reminds me of feng shui and getting your home in order and everything to be in harmony. I think the word harmony, I mean, just throughout everything in life is so beautiful because in music, you want to harmonize. It makes it fuller. In life, you want to harmonize. You want to harmonize with your family, your job, your personal life in any other way. And to have it compared to writing and getting writing the story in it, I find fascinating. Would you like to elaborate more on how harmony affects the story uh, give, with an example if you have one. Sure. You remember the creation myth structure? Yes. Where you have the story of Genesis and that just flows on. But it, look, if all stories were like that, they'd all be the same and it would be a very boring story. Things just flow. Mm -hmm. The point is that we have different kinds of problems. And again, what I found in the research that is new is that different story structures arise from different kinds of problems. If you have a problem that you can solve very easily by yourself, then naturally out of that, just like a plant emerges from a seed, you get a structure that I call the quest structure. So let's say you've lost your keys. You need to drive to a meeting, get there on time, but you can't do that until you find your keys. So what do you do? You go on a journey around your house. You might sit down on the sofa and close your eyes and think you're going on an internal journey. Where did I put them last? Where was I or retrace my steps? Whether the journey is internal, whether the journey is external, you're going on a journey and you will stop at a given place. As soon as you've stopped, you're not moving anymore. And that holds you up. You start to look. You might stop in front of the sofa and dig down to see whether the keys are in between the cushions. They might have fallen out of your pocket. Either you'll find them, in which case problem solved. You can leave the house, lock the door and open the door to your car, get in, drive away. Or the structure loops. Your quest was unsuccessful. You're back with the same problem you started with. You have to go on another journey, look in another place. And sometimes it takes a try, try, try again pattern for you to find, ah, yes, of course, I left them by my bedside table. How silly of me. Right, up the stairs, get the keys, out again. That's a problem you can solve yourself very easily. Knowing the pattern that it follows, problem, journey, meeting with friend or helper, meeting with enemy or hindrance, defeating the enemy or hindrance, coming to the end, that's the quest structure. Knowing that makes it very easy for you to say, okay, I've got a problem, this is what I need to do. The same approach applies to problems that are often too big for us to face by ourselves. And this is the kind of thing that the uh, death and rebirth structure follows. It starts negative. There's a problem. There's a lack. And that lack is fulfilled. You know, the mother says, I, I wish for a child. And it's difficult. 
and supernatural forces may come to their aid. But they have the child, but there's a price to pay. Uh-oh. No one likes paying the price. So they decide that, you know what? We're special. We're going to get away with it. We're going to fix things so that we don't have to pay the price. Never works. The price is exacted and the consequences have to be lived with. At that point, a savior character comes in. It's a multi-character, multi-dimensional, multi-energy story. In order for harmony to be restored, somebody else has to come in with their own problem. They go on a quest structure. They go on a journey, use their internal or external friends or helpers to defeat a problem. This is when the prince comes and awakens Sleeping Beauty. He's on the search for the perfect bride. He finds her. This is in the modern version of the story, at least. Wakes her up and harmony is restored. That is an example of how that story structure unfolds from a different kind of problem. And again, if you know you're faced with that kind of problem, you know that if you're going to learn anything from story structure, that supernatural forces may be needed to be involved. And those supernatural forces are not necessarily angels or demons. They're forces we have inside us, intuition, instinct. Yeah? Yeah. Things that are beyond rationality. And that typically some other quality needs to come in to go on their own quest structure, so their own problem, in order to bring balance and harmony back to the system. I'm visualizing everything you were talking about as you were saying it. And one of the quotes that, and I don't remember who made this quote, is that the story has a happy ending or a regular ending, depending on where you stop the story. So, because sometimes you stop a story and you're kind of wondering, okay, there, there looks like there should have been more. And then in film and TV, then you say, oh, they want a sequel. In actual writing, how do you use that? I think it all depends on the character. With tragedy, mm -hmm. there's an unwitting act. In all the great tragedies, the fatal flaw in the characters, they try to do the right thing, but they end up doing exactly the thing they're trying to avoid. Yeah. Oedipus doesn't really want to kill his father and marry his mother. He's doing everything he can to avoid that. What does he end up doing? Unwittingly, exactly what he didn't want to do. And there's the tragedy. Yeah. But tragedy, uh, I've got two chapters in the book that are that relate to this one is on tragedy and one is on comedy with tragedy my point is that it is there to bring harmony aristotle saw it as a means of bringing about catharsis which he defined as soul cleansing you see something happen on stage you see oh my goodness me there but for the grace of god go i and you go off and you put your life back in shape. You harmonize it. Comedy is very similar. It's function. You know, why do we laugh, Sonia? What makes us laugh? Something that we can relate to a little bit and then it's just twisted. It's that twist, isn't it? Yes. yes. 
And that twist is created by what I define as a category mistake. Categories are ways in which we see the world. We can see them numerically, quantifiably. We can see them qualitatively. Uh, you can see somebody walking down the street and say, oh, they're about six feet tall. Or you can say, hmm, that's a man or a woman. You know instinctively. And mm -hmm. if you're thinking about one way of um, seeing them, you're not thinking about the other. You have to separate them in your mind. Now, it, you're also seeing somebody walking down the street and you know what position they're in. And if suddenly, boop, they trip and fall on a banana skin, <laughs> it made you laugh, right? Because it does, it's yeah. unexpected. And we shouldn't be laughing at it. They could be hurt. They could have knocked their head out. They could have been unconscious. Yeah, but our instinct is to laugh because we've come across something that shouldn't be. And yet it's a category mistake. It's a category mistake that makes us or should make us pay attention to restore harmony. It shows us that something's out of balance. It's a perception of society. We think if someone looks a certain way that they're going to act a certain way. And it is funny. And I don't know because I'm, I'm an actor and I, I'm usually the comic relief because I'm kind of funny. But does it have the rule of three like you do in comedy? in the writing oh yes yes yeah yeah i call that the revelation structure yeah you have to build up for it there's a bit of suspense there's a rumor that something might be um going on and then the rumor is kind of confirmed and then there's the reveal and then there's the laugh marie yeah. louise von france talks about it and she says it's not just a one two three it's a series of three it's a one two three bang yeah. And it's that suspense that leads up to the bang and the bang is transformative. That's when something new happens and you can go on from there. I love comedy. I love to watch it. I like to laugh. I've gotten some poems that I wrote that are humorous because I'm making fun of myself. But I really admire someone that can write comedy like a story or a sitcom. Now, if it's haha too much throughout, you don't get a story I find. You just get one-liners that are there just to make you laugh. But to do that and still keep a story, especially when you have a traumatic situation, but yet you have those moments that are funny, they give you relief when you're reading or watching it. Now in story structure and comedy, if there's a tragedy, when do you introduce the comedy? Do you do it before and after, or do you do it after? I don't know how that structure works. Well, that's more to do with the narrative form. So with stories, you have two levels on which the story is progressing. You have the level of story time where the events follow one another in chronological order. And that happens at the um, level of each character. Each character has their own storyline. But then there's the telling the time of the telling, and that can be in any order you want. And it's up to the storyteller or the writer or the poet to artfully combine the scenes, the moments, the events in a way that serves their purpose. I could tell the story of the three little pigs in a very tragic way, a very matter of fact way, or a very entertaining way. I could do the huffing and puffing from the wolf's point of view. And he huffed and he puffed on more. 
goodness me, he hadn't done this for months. He was out of breath. He can hardly <laughs> breathe. Oh, oh, I don't know if I can keep this up much longer. Do you mind helping me just pushing the wall a bit? Because I'm getting old and oh, you don't want to. That's a bit much. That oh, would be no, funny. Yeah. I'd love to see that. There you go. See? Yeah. <laughs> the retiree <laughs> that would be funny um you must write that if you want to but uh i see where the comedy and how to structure it because there's certain forms since i write from uh, stream of consciousness and then i have a lot of work in editing but it's the moments that you create and i know that i've written certain things that i'll go to and take it to an editor and he goes well that part that you have in like section three should really be like in the first part or the first chapter i write short stories so it's you know only in sections yeah. really and you know but you don't see it until someone like points mm -hmm. it out because you're doing it as you're thinking about it and what i argue in my book uh, sonia is that if you have a knowledge of story structure you can then map the reader's journey as a separate character storyline. And you want them to have patterns of excitement, of suspense, of surprise, and knowing the harmonic way of doing them that leads them to a good experience is useful because A, it'll save you money on editing, and B, it'll put you in control of that process. It'll, it'll also give you more choices. You can tell the story in a certain way for a certain purpose, for a certain audience, and then you can adapt it, tell it in a different way for a different audience, for a different reader experience. I like the idea of having the audience or the reader be the another character. The whole thing, as you've been speaking today, has been me visualizing it. And, some, and it's like, sometimes I'm like, okay, wait, I got to get back to the section he's talking. I'm still visualizing on the first part here. But I, I find this fascinating. I really like the way you address story. And I love the fact that you go for the harmony, for the soul of it, for what propels the story in the first place as to bringing it together. Thank you so much. And there's one thing that I, I need to ask you is how could people reach you this, or get your book? Ah, oh, you just reach out and press a button and go to leonconrad.com, L-E-O-N-C-O-N-R-A-D. You can find links to my Facebook, to Instagram, Twitter, Substack newsletter, and just reach out, drop me a line, send me an email, sign up to my newsletter, check out my books. I'd love to hear from you. Is there anything that you would like to tell the audience in closing? that we haven't covered. I think since this is a poetry um, podcast, the, and we opened with the free form poem structure, that it would be fitting for us to come full circle. The circle is a great symbol of harmony. And I want to leave you with a quote from that Irish poet, James Stevens, who said, the blank verse form is incomparably the subtlest the greatest instrument that literary art has evolved. The matter that can be submitted to this form must be the gravest that the mind can conceive, and naturally the most intensely comprehended. 
it must also be a matter that can be held, as it were, stationary. You grab that content by the balls, you know it deeply, and you hold it still. And then you dance around it, and that dance becomes a harmony you put into the poem. And oh, if you can do that. And that is a beautiful, beautiful quote. It just makes so much sense and it brings the right to core in a few words. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you. Everyone out there, take care. Thank you very much, Sonia. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast. Available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.